We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organized chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence Squared too. That's notion.com squared. You're listening to Intelligence Squared. Today we hear from the authors of the recently published book, Poles Apart. They discuss the forces that are tearing society apart and how we can bring people back together. Here's the host, Linda Yu, with more. I am absolutely thrilled to welcome Ali Goldsworthy, Laura Osborne, and Alex Chesterfield, who are here to talk about their new book, Pulse Apart. They are respectively an expert on polarization, a behavioral scientist, and a professional communicator. Ali is a former deputy chair of the Liberal Democrats. Laura is managing director and spokesperson at London First, the voice of London's largest businesses. And Alex is a behavioral scientist who currently works in financial services, leading a team of psychologists to encourage consumers to make better decisions that drive ethical business cultures. So in Pulse Apart, they write that people will often express more strongly how they feel about another group than what they think of the issues that divide them. So polarization distorts our perceptions of the world. For instance, Brits overestimate the immigrant population in the UK by 54%. And then they find it very hard to change their opinions, even when they are demonstrated to be wrong or the situation has changed. And the authors say these failings are common to all of us. So the question amongst many that we'll explore today is are we destined to pull further apart or can societies find a way to come together. I do personally hope it is the latter. And if you pick up the book, <laughs> you'll find the ways in which we will get to that point. And but we will we will do that indeed in our discussion uh, today. So warm welcome to Alice and Laura and Alex. So in a moment, I want to really cover off three different uh, parts in this conversation, which actually tracks uh, the sections of their book which is how people go from being individuals to groups, to factions. What are the triggers of polarization? And finally, how we can all come together. But before I do that, it is a little, not, it's not that unusual to have three co-authors of a book. Um, so I'm gonna ask Laura to tell me why you decided to write this book together. Thank you, Linda. And I think I should say from the outset, it is unusual to have three co-authors, but I'm not sure we ever would have managed to complete this book if any of us had tried to do it by ourselves over the last 18 months. So at many points, we have been very grateful for each other. But really, the spark for the podcast and then the book was Ali's work on depolarization at Stanford. So Ali was kind of deep immersed in thinking about this when she came over to the UK, took Alex and I for a drink as some you know, previous colleagues 
interested in what she was doing and essentially talked us into doing a podcast with her. So said, so you have the expertise and the backgrounds that uh, fill some gaps that I'm looking to fill, you know, come on, come on board. And together we can ask people questions from three really interesting and unusual perspectives. And we like a challenge. So we said yes, of course. And then we were very fortunate to meet an editor from Pen- Penguin Random House, Nigel Wilcoxon, at a book launch of a, of a friend of ours, Steve Martin. And he, we told him about the podcast and the types of issues we were interested in. And that there were three of us, that we were women with different political viewpoints, different backgrounds. And he was like, that's fascinating. Send me a book proposal. And that is how we came to be. <laughs> okay. So that confirms my theory that lots of good things come from getting together for a drink. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> um, so on to our first topic, and indeed, again, the first section of your book. So I found this really interesting. You write that among university students in the United States, partisan preferences, such as we hate Trump, is the biggest factor in choosing a roommate. Students said they would rather live with someone who's not clean or tidy than with someone who supported the opposing party. In the UK, you write that progressive activists are the likeliest to have a politically narrow friendship group. So, Ali, tell me about how it's not nature versus nurture, but nature and nurture that determines um, groups and polarization. Yeah, and I think this is this is a core part of what we're talking about with polarization is that the groups and our tendency to put things into group is a very natural process for us that evolutionary has kept us kept us safe. And in our modern world, the way that that is interacting is, you know, we're not worried about being keeping safe from predators any longer, but a sense of threat can be something quite different. And that political other, when things become very polarized, can manifest in in very different ways. And so our conflicts can extend into you know quite dangerous places this is what we would argue when when polarization becomes pernicious is when for a lot of people it's not just about different tribes in politics and how we we settle disputes there where some polarization is extremely healthy it's when it moves into a different place and one of the things that we found most surprising when researching the book you know i like to think you know i'll acknowledge that my my groupishness can have an effect on what I what I do. You know, I've had that feeling when it's someone I really dislike who says something I agree with and I find it really annoying. But <laughs> the, the point that, that, you know, really challenged us and we had to sort of accept it on the evidence was how your genes can interact with the wider environment. And that is not to say that people have a, a gene that sort of says, oh, well, you must be a conservative or you must be a liberal. But you can have genes that, you know, can alter your attitude to risk, which, you know, anyone with small children will know that different babies will have different attitudes to climbing sofas and falling off the other side. And, you know, some of that can be be down to genetics, but, you know, also it can be down to the environment and how they are activated within it. So if a certain thing happens, some people can feel more threatened or be more likely to have a more authoritarian response and more likely to seek security in their group than, than others. And, you know, that there's some research now as people understand more how genes work, that it can begin to explain, partially explain, this is not a a complete explanation, 
everything you know from our, our views on on women's rights to how potentially how strong our, our support for democracy is and all of that kind of stuff and that interaction is one of the things that can make polarization so challenging to to try and resolve and you are also right about how humans have an innate need to belong to a group and the importance of identity so you give the example we send christmas cards to people we scarcely remember to avoid damaging a relationship that barely exists such as the strength of this need yet you do tell the story of how white nationalists changed his mind in america and became alienated from his own family so alex to understand this better um tell me about the difference between beliefs attitudes and values yeah great question um so beliefs are um what we believe to be true and they might not actually have any uh, evidence base or be grounded in knowledge so for example i believe that ghosts uh, are real i don't actually believe ghosts are real but just go with me so i might believe ghosts are real <laughs> but i have no evidence um or proof that ghosts are actually real and because it's like they're like a conviction and because they're like a conviction and something that we think is true and um, they can be really hard to uh, shift attitudes on the other hand are more of a global evaluation of a for example of an event or a person um, or an object and they tend to be more positively or negatively uh, valent so for example um, i might think that uh, laura i might believe sorry that laura doesn't pay her taxes whether or not that makes me angry will be more about my um, attitude but because attitude are typically positive or negative that means that uh, they can make us more um, biased and although attitudes can change over time so for example if you look at you know public shifts in attitudes towards gay marriage for example in the uk you can see that attitudes do change over time but often again they can be um, very very tricky now the hardest to change are uh, values and values kind of transcend both uh, beliefs and attitudes and they're much more about what we think is important um, in life and in terms of where our values come from it really goes back to that nature nature and uh, nurture so you know classically people typically tend to think that our values were taught to us from our parents and that you know we'd almost become socialized so we'd learn what they valued what they prioritized you know work for example versus i don't know play whatever so we learn as kids what's important but values also come from our broader um culture as well so you know nationally and again there's some really cross uh, cultural really interesting sorry cross cultural research that shows actually different countries broadly prioritize or value different things in life and then again, Again, our, what we value is also a product of us again what we directly inherit from our parents in terms of genes and and how that influences our sensitivity to the, to the environment which we're in so it is that it's not determined not to sound deterministic but it is more interactive but yeah values are the hardest to change and again coming back to polarization when we think about the groups you identify with we then adopt the not just the beliefs but also the values of the groups that we that we psychologically identify with which can make it really really then hard to change because it's not just it feels like you're not asking someone to change their values individually but actually change themselves so who they are as a person that makes it really really hard yeah it's it's i found um, the first section of your book to be fascinating the genetics the environment the values there were a couple of examples i was just going to pull out before we move on to the triggers of division is um you know alex picking up what you said the very strength of their convictions um makes their brains resistant 
to a change of mind. And I found this fascinating that mm. you note that those who most vigorously reject the scientific evidence for climate change, for instance, are also those who believe they're best informed about the subject. And then the other poll out I was going to highlight for the audience is you write that we tend to remember information that confirms what we already think rather than facts that challenge our assumptions. So if we believe that bankers are intrinsically selfish and we come across a badly behaving one, oh, we remember that one. But if we remember, if we read a story about making a large charitable donation, the banker does that, we tend to forget it. <laughs> so before we leave uh, the section, you know, Ali, do you just want to link this to uh, political polarization for us? Yeah, let me let me pick out an example here. So um, the the uh, a guy called Steve Baker, who's the MP uh, for High Wycombe, who used to be involved in the European Reform Group. And so you know, I, I you know I was a Remainer. It was as part of my identity. You know, I just said I am rather than I believe. You know, Steve has been actually pretty civil in how he's handled things afterwards. And I run these things called the Civility and Politics Awards. And he did, on the night of Brexit, he did a very magnanimous speech in the House of Commons saying, yes, I'm going to go and celebrate. You know, he dedicated his life to trying to leave the European Union. He thought it was the right thing to do. and But I'm going to do it quietly. I recognise for a lot of people that's been very challenging. And as part of the award, you know, we gave him some money to give to a local nonprofit. And he gave his money to his local women's aid. And I think for a lot of people, that was quite surprising because they didn't expect him to also care about women's rights issues. And when I talk to people in the progressive community, often who will be Remainers and and look at things from that point of view, I have to remind them, you know, that that was what Steve did and that there's areas that he may well agree with them and they may well have common ground. And he's not all bad, you know, from their point of view, or all disagreement. There's many areas where they 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 should they should agree. And that's a tendency to see those who are different to you as all the same and only see nuance in your in-group, basically. So that's, a, that's I guess, a, a contemporary political example. And I'm amazed by how often I'll talk to people and they'll be surprised that that was the issue Steve cared that he picked, that he really cared about. And that, that helped his local Women's Aid throughout the pandemic provide shelter and support to, to women who are, you know, suffering extreme domestic violence. Mm, thank you. So the second section um, I thought we would discuss is the triggers of division. So anything that causes people to fear losing what they already have or what they aspire to but don't have offered the potential for resentment you write about in your book. So you've got different factors. Let's start with the economic one, Laura. As we know, inequality is a trigger. So instead, tell us about uncertainty, how that has a polarizing effect. So I think, Linda, one of the things that we found when we looked at the book is that they often go together. So well, there's a fantastic study, which I, if you if you have the book or you get the book, I'd urge you to have a look at, which goes back over 200 years of the consequences of financial crashes and what that means for people gripping more tightly to a left or a right identity and moving further towards the extremes. Now, part of the reason that people do that is uncertainty. So the uncertainty that is caused by an economic situation that means you fear you will have less or you fear someone else will have more or that in some way that you've lost, and this is really important in a polarisation context, some of that hope for the future, that makes a huge difference here as well. And that boosts that sense of uncertainty, which again pushes us back into this cycle of clinging on to our group identities uh, more tightly because it gives us that feeling of belonging that we look for when we are less sure of our standing in the world. So there are 
you know, definite triggers, inequality is one of them, rising uncertainty is another. And we often talk about that in the context now of the pandemic as well, because, you know, while at the beginning you saw everybody move towards, you know, a, a sort of shared sense of, of tackling it, over time that starts to slip away. And as people start to fear that they've lost something, they start to be quite concerned that their group will lose out at the expense of others. And, you know, as Ali often says, actually, you know, we risk seeing it get worse before it gets better. I found it so interesting that um, some countries, uh, Japan, Guatemala, rank highest for uncertainty avoidance, whereas uh, the mm. UK and the US are actually among the lowest. So you describe Brits as uh, happy to make it up as we go along and generally muddle and make it through and are quite innovative. So I do encourage um, everyone to pick up your book and to read a bit more about that. So Ali, what is the political factor that triggers division? Gosh, well, there can be a lot of political factors that come together and and, and interplay to to you know the because I suppose you know as Alex will often say, your behaviour is a function of both who you are and the environment in which you operate. And so, if you if you sort of apply that to a political sense, it's both you know who the political parties are, I guess, and the environment in which they operate. That environment can be affected by everything from like the amount of money in the system, how the media perform, people who do. Jobs like I used to do as a massive rabble rouser for what political scientists will call interest groups. But most of us would recognize as, you know, campaigning organizations, everybody from 38 degrees to the, the National Trust to, you know, you know, RSPB, um, you know, how they can influence and, and mobilize people with, with what is going on. And and I think that's the, the key point, you know, the politicians themselves, you know, and like I say, the structural environment in which they, they go, you know, the, uh, you know, the House of Lords is full of people who are appointed for life. Like their accountability is is fairly low. The consequences for them of going against their tribe, well, what's going to happen? You know, like they're not, there's no consequence like for the Conservatives at the uh, 2019 general election where Benson had the whip taken off them and they, they weren't allowed to stand. So all of these things interplay with each other to either encourage polarization or to discourage polarization. And I suppose the way that, let's, let's skip it to the UK, the way that that British politics is is normally set up, you know, generally two parties. I appreciate in Scotland that it's different. And I was a Lib Dem, so I'm, I'm you know, I should definitely tell you that it's not just a two horse race, but actually often it is. Um, don't tell my former colleagues I said that. <laughs> but, you know, it's a choice between two and you should have, in effect, two quite big, broad churches that do that. But when that, that stops happening or there stops being space in the middle ground, then it all becomes very fuzzy. And, and in effect, you know, people start to just fall out and you can't from the system and it stops being able to function very well and that in essence is is to a certain extent what's happening in the in the UK that I should say there are you know it's Laura touched on this that things are probably likely to get worse before they get better but this is not the first time in history that we have polarized and you things do tend to ebb and flow a bit often there will be resetting events that will help to do that so that can be anything from natural disasters or, or war points but that you do get them and that that does happen but there can be huge political reward for polarizing and binding people to your cause um and using that for votes. And that's that's not always a bad thing. Like voter choice and a clear distinction between parties matters at election time. But when those political labels become ongoing labels of convenience, that's one of the, the drivers to polarization when you get like no downtime in between. 
And Alex, let's talk about messages of division and our reaction to fictional stories. So you all write that oxytocin is produced in the brain, is a powerful hormone that induces bonding behavior, connects us to each other, and also links us emotionally to stories. So when people get moved by watching a movie, um, those people are not real, but we are still, we're, we're invested. So why are stories potentially dangerous? Mm. I think one of the things that we found that really struck us researching the book, particularly those of us, I know Linda, you'll resonate with this, who have studied more, um, I guess, you know, science-based degrees, is that actually science and statistics rarely uh, work to change people's minds and to really resonate. On the other hand, stories uh, stories do. And it's often because we can relate to those stories uh, much more than we can to a number or a statistic. And there's an effect in uh, psychology called, I think it's a big, um, the identifiable victim effect, which often charities use. So for example, where uh, they're trying to raise money for a particular cause they will highlight the story or the case of you know a single a single child and that has shown to be much more effective in, in getting funds in versus highlighting actually that it could be millions of children who are facing a similar level of harm but it just it just isn't as effective so it's it's much more and um, much more relatable and if you think again the way humans have evolved we have passed down and related to each other through uh, through stories. So again, right back from caveman times to now, they're much more relatable, much more uh, empathetic than, for example, hard number statistics. But I'm sure, Ali, I know you have written, you you were a, a big part of that chapter. So if you want to build on that, go for it. Yeah, well, oxytocin is the, the love hormone, you know, which is what, what well, typically if a new mum is lucky, she'll have quite a high dose of it because that is how she gets through the many, many sleepless nights that the baby wakes them up. And then you go in and you think, why don't you go to sleep? And then you look at your child and you think, I've never loved you more than I've ever loved anything in my entire life. Thank you for waking me up. So it is the hormone <laughs> that is responsible for that particular feeling. And I think that's that's the point. It's because it creates an emotional bind that ties. And once you've done that and you're like, oh, that person, oh, I like them. Oh, they, I feel for them. You know, you're much more likely to give them the benefit of the doubt and find it harder to assess some of the information that that happens and you know some of the earliest examples of this being leveraged particularly through film which is a you know more than the word is a way to try and resonate this is actually in, in Nazi Germany so Lenny Riefenstahl started using it when you know to try and bind support to Hitler and in fact against Jews and much of that is you know some of the same storytelling is clearly not the anti-Semitic parts of it. The same techniques in storytelling are, are widely used by Steven Spielberg. So for fans of Star Wars, that is literally where the dark side comes, you know, and you can see, I'll very happily share like some of the pictures that are, are extremely similar between Triumph of the Will and Riefenstahl's work and then Steven Spielberg with, with Star Wars about how he has in effect triggered an emotional bind to the cause of good and against someone else. I mean, going back to the earlier point, Linda, on what values are, I mean, stories often tap into those fundamental human values. So, for example, what is good, you know, good and evil, what is right and wrong, um, much more than any single statistical number can. Yeah, it's interesting that you have that in your kind of trigger section. So stories can be dangerous in, in the ways that you described. There was also a really positive and surprising study that you all mentioned that studies have shown that if you get people to laugh with you, trust and generosity increase by 30 percent. 
And by getting them to last, not only ties your own group closer together, but makes it harder for those not in your group to dislike you. So I just wanted to highlight that as a tip. <laughs> um, yeah, and humor is really underused as a as a mm. healing device, actually. And it can be really powerful, like laughing along with someone or at the absurdity of situations can be, can, you know, when, when people often ask me, like, what could they do? And I'd be like, you could do something funny and stop being so serious all the time. Like, send yourself up a bit. <laughs> uh, very good tips there. So our third and final section of this discussion mirrors, again, your book. Um, how do we bring people together? So you focus on three areas, reshaping institutions, reshaping groups, and reshaping ourselves. So let's uh, actually let's start uh, with Laura. You quote Abraham Lincoln, who reportedly said, I don't like that man. I must get to know him better. <laughs> so, Laura, tell us about reshaping groups and the shared activity approach. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we we looked for a long time for the definitive origin for that quote. And so I think we had to say, you know, it is assumed that he said something along those lines. But behind that quote is a genuine strand of possibility in terms of bridging divides, which is we often make really strong, almost immovable assumptions about people who are in different groups to us. And we often don't really know what to do about it or how to tackle it. And I guess the first thing is obviously you have to want to. So there is a big thing for groups and how they interact around what the motivation is to do that. And so one of the things that we talk about in the book is the identification of shared goals and some commonality is finding that space where there is something that links the two groups, where there is something that people can find a bit of common ground on and build out from there. I mean, another thing that we found really fascinating in terms of the, the way to uh, bring different people together is to get them to do different activities. So this really took me by surprise when we were researching the book, just how much activities that slow down interactions between groups make a big difference. So for example, the craftivism movement where people do craft together and then start to talk about some of the issues that divide them while they're focused on another task, again, that they have in common, makes a big difference to the quality of conversation that they have and their ability to engage across those divides. So I think there's lots of different ways to try and bring groups together. But I think probably the first and most obvious one is, is to try and be aware that we make assumptions, to enter into some of those interactions with a slightly more curious mindset where we are trying to understand rather than win in those interactions, which can help to bring us all a little closer together. Mm, yeah, really interesting points there. So Laura mentioned there, slowing down, adding frictions. Ali, uh, tell me about what you all propose in terms of reshaping institutions. Um, you like to see institutions have a little grit in the system. Slow it down a little bit as well, don't you? Yeah. So, well, I suppose it, let's, uh, well, so uh, let's pick two examples here. So one is to think about like the diversity of teams. It's, I'll do a political and a non-political example. So often when people build teams up, they'll think very hard about diversity in terms of gender or race. And that is completely right. We're not suggesting in any way political stuff should be a protected characteristic, but you can actually end up with people who agree on an awful lot of things when you do that. And good innovation 
and, you know, growth and good scrutiny tends to come from people with different perspectives and from different viewpoints. And so if you're in a team and you want to do that, you know, and you're building things like that's something that's really important to think about as a if you're in terms of an institution. If you're thinking about that in a political sense, let's take the example of select committees in Westminster. There's often different varieties of that throughout the world. But um, people who aren't familiar, they tend to be cross party groups who will look deep dive into one issue. So that can be anything from culture, media and sport through to health or sometimes special ones that are set up to look at things like like the pandemic. And what's really important is that the people who are in that, they come from diverse backgrounds and that they're not controlled too much by the people at the top. So there's a really good example, actually, in terms of how this plays out in polarization in in the UK. So someone was going for chair of a select committee, a guy called Chris Grayling, who had been in the cabinet for for many years. um, And he was fairly loyal to the leadership. Let's let's say that. And David Cameron's autobiography has a, a stunning line about Chris Grayling, where he basically says, and Theresa Villiers, another MP, she came and she was a great Northern Ireland secretary. And then Chris Grayling was also in the cabinet. And sometimes it's what people don't say that tell you about their performance. And that was that was one thing there. But he was very loyal. So people wanted him to be in charge of that the select committee because there'd be less scrutiny of the government and it would help them look better. One of his colleagues, a guy called Julian Lewis, decided that he had enough of that and that he he wanted to stand and be against there and he thought he'd offer better scrutiny and he was able to secure enough support from people from different parties to be able to then win that position and offer better scrutiny and support to the government and that actually is one of those things that can help depolarize as an institution is when they build in those better scrutiny mechanisms that people from different tribes or who are willing to speak out against their own tribe can be extremely important so that's one example of how how institutions both political and then with a non-political application, can help depolarize. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv the events calendar is filling up here at intelligence squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and on-stage talent but behind the scenes there's also a producer a production team and the budget in the mix too you've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place netsuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. 
That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Alex, you will write that changing your mind more um, often than not requires you to grapple with your own identity. So you also, we discussed this, say that facts do not change our minds. Opinions come first and facts are interpreted to support them. So how do we reshape ourselves? Yeah, as we were saying right at the start around about confirmation uh, bias, and we often interpret and process information in a way that supports our, our prior views. So I think the number one piece of advice would be to um, not start throwing facts out um, or challenging what you perceive as uh, false information. And actually, one approach which has been shown to work, at least in some contexts, is not to say that something isn't true, but that the opposite is true. I'll give you an example of earlier on this year when we had the, the petrol crisis and the government saying we don't have a petrol crisis. What people hear is petrol and crisis. Whereas actually responding <laughs> responding with uh, something like actually there's plenty of petrol for all will mean people uh, remember that rather than what you don't want them to remember. So don't say what isn't true, say the opposite is true. That's one tip. Second is something, a phenomenon called the illusion of explanatory depth. And this is the phenomenon where we tend to think we understand a lot more than we actually do. And the researchers that uh, originally coined this phenomena started off uh, looking at people's understanding of everyday objects, so things like toilets and, and zips and, and fridges. And what they found was is that people imagined that they, they understood very well, they're very confident in their beliefs that they, can they could describe how one of those everyday objects worked. But what the researchers found was is that when they were asked to describe mechanistically, so step by step, you know, let me take the example of a toilet, I flush the handle, they then realise, actually, I don't know what happens after I flush the handle. I just see the water flush. And the researchers then applied that concept to uh, political attitudes. And again, what they found was is that people originally had very strong um, beliefs about particular policy positions um, or ideologies. But when they were asked to explain mechanistically how their desired policy would reach their desired outcome, people realised actually that they there were gaps in their knowledge. And what happened was that they then ended up moderating their beliefs. So, I mean, this is only based on a couple of studies, and again, in the US, so caveats. But I think as a phenomenon, it's really, I don't know, it gives us, I think it gives us some um, hope. And the key is not to ask people why they believe what they believe, because that then leads to, that then leads people to, again, come back to their values or hearsay or broad principles, which is really hard to then argue against. It leads people to be very defensive. So again, ask people how they come, how they came to that position and, you know, step by step. And that will then um, potentially reveal gaps, which will then help moderate and open people's minds to alternative uh, positions or, or pieces of information. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. 
And well, we, before we came on, we were joking. We don't quite understand how these video platforms work. <laughs> so, <laughs> I started thinking, no idea. I really would not have a strong view on this. I have no idea how this works. I turned it on. hope for the best. Um, okay. Um, we have tons of questions. I'm going to turn to uh, the questions. So thank you all very much in the audience for putting in these great questions. The first one that's come through is, how is polarization affecting businesses? We see corporations taking a stance on more and more social issues. Surely this is bound to cause polarization and friction. Laura? That's a great question. Um, one of the things that we were really keen to dig into actually in the book was how business operates in this space. And I think there's two important things that I took away certainly from the research. And one was something that was first flagged to us from Helen Lewis at The Atlantic, which was when businesses get involved in very polarised debates and they are taking quite strong stances, sometimes to try and fix something, but sometimes just to be seen to have a view. Are they actually doing anything? Are they making the division worse? Are they solving a problem? Are they stopping people from thinking about how to actually solve a problem? And that set off a sort of really interesting train of thought for, for me and for Alex and Ali, which is what can business do? Because obviously businesses within themselves will have people with lots of different viewpoints. But often the CEOs are in a position, as the question rightly identifies, where they've got to take a really firm view one way or the other, because we all tend to expect certainty from our leaders. We all tend to expect a certain position. But how much does that help? And there's some really interesting research in the book that was done by Deloitte, which essentially says, for everybody that you persuade to join your company because you've taken a really strong stance on something, there will be a roughly equal amount, surprise, surprise, that you've put off by doing that. So I think one of the things that we took away from this, and certainly I've thought about in a business context, is actually what can you do inside the business first? So while there is often a drive to get involved in these big issues by running an ad campaign or being really visible or vocal, how can you start those conversations within the organisation? How can you think about genuinely diverse teams? And how can leaders show that they are aware of this in the activities that the organisation does? So I think while, it, while it's very kind of tempting to think about what business puts out into the world, I think our thinking on how business could help with polarisation is to look inside the organisations a little bit more in terms of how to engage staff and suppliers and others in a discussion on some of these big issues. Really good tip. Thank you. The next question is, people like Ezra Klein, so um, this is the uh, American uh, journalist, have written that polarization is not inherently bad. Do you agree, Alex? Yes, I'm nodding a lot. Yes, polarization isn't inherently bad. We don't want some big amorphous blob where everyone agrees. That would not be particularly productive. For, for progression. And if you look back through history, for example, it has often taken people at the extreme. So think about the uh, women's uh, vote movement to get progressive change and positive change in society. So yeah, we're not saying that polarization is bad. What is bad is where people hate each other. So it's this affective polarization. So traditionally, when people think about polarization, they think about issues polarization, which is where people divide or disagree on issues. What we're seeing a more modern phenomena is this affective polarization, which is rooted much more in our identity. So who we are and who we are as individuals is at least partly about the groups that we identify and belong with, um, which means that actually we since we identify with one group over another, we like our in-group, we dislike our out-group, and I'm generalising a bit. Um, but that then makes constructive debate really difficult because we could actually agree on the same thing. But because we 
identifying different groups, you know, us and them, uh, that impedes conversation and, and progression. Mm, thank you. The next question, I think, Laura, I'm going to pose it to you from Paul from Wandsworth. How do we reduce polarization when social media reinforces and, and incentivizes it? Because you were speaking there about CEOs and uh, more public scrutiny there. So I think the social media aspect is one that gets a lot of discussion in this debate. And Ali may want to come in as well, because it's a particular area of her research. But one of the challenges, of course, is that social media does incentivize more divisive content so that we all know about clickbait. We all know about the chances that things will get shared more and liked more if they push people to debate and discuss it. So the models and the financial models that underpin social media are really, really quite problematic for polarisation. But I think, as, as Ali, I'm sure, will say in a second, it's not the root of all that is bad. So we did a really interesting discussion with some experts on this the other day. And, you know, there are definitely parts built into the mechanism that cause problems. But there are also ways to use social platforms and other types of debate to have constructive conversations. You know, that has to be part of how they think about their future because, you know, the division and obviously we'll have seen the, oh, it's meta now, I was about to call it Facebook, but seeing all the criticism that goes towards those platforms. You know, they are aware of what it is that the platform does. They know and have tested things that could help with it. So over time, you have to hope that their role in it would diminish at least a bit. But Ali, I don't know if you want to add to that. Yeah, so I think that, and it wasn't implicit in Paul's question, but often it is when people come, you know, is they, they want to, we like to have a baddie to blame in life. Like you were talking about storytelling. We like, this is the good side, this is the bad side. And Facebook slash Meta does an awful lot to, you know, put it, paint itself as a comedy pantomime villain, basically. And it deserves a huge <laughs> amount of, of, of flack for that. Social media can bridge divides. Occasionally it does. I'll come back to some examples of that as well. But, you know, people sometimes think if we just got rid of Facebook, then this polarization would disappear. And that's not the case because it really isn't the first time we've polarized. And what stopped us in the book going, you know, headlong down a, a channel that, you know, that there's echo chambers and all of this, and this is the root of polarization. And that, you know, again, like this discussion we had about how far echo chambers exist is a piece of work that was, was done in the US, which showed that the most polarized people were those who were least likely to be online. And that that's one of the things that should give people pause for thought. And there are examples where social media can be really helpful at, at bridging divides and can give people a different sense of belonging. So there was some research out last week that actually showed Reddit didn't always have the same effects that Facebook did in terms of muting moderates and amplifying people. And that's partly because it's got a different financial model behind it. Reddit has, for people who, who want to feel good about bridging divides, there's a fantastic subreddit called Change My View, which is based on very similar to our podcast like when what is people put offer up an idea and sometimes they can be quite like hostile and very strongly held ideas but they have to be open to changing their mind and they will reward people who come up with persuasive arguments to do that and that is where like norms of behavior can make a huge difference to how people interact and what goes on so yes social media has got an awful lot to answer for in amplifying and making things worse but it's it's not not the only reason that we're divided by by any stretch and can even sometimes Times do some good. Thank you. I remember there was a, a thing on Twitter that said, follow someone you disagree with. I think that's probably the Twitter version of, of Reddit. But, 
Yeah, that doesn't always work, right? Because if you follow <laughs> someone you disagree with, you can just be like, oh my God, look at this. This is outrageous. Isn't this entertaining? And it can be True. really triggering. You know, people might have seen where they, they share things that they're like, can you believe this person uh, said that? What an idiot they are. And like, that's where you have to be a lot more careful about how you create things and do stuff. And the growth models out here, you know, I'm, I'm sat in Silicon Valley, like the growth models that, that people pursue, like polarization can be such an effective way to grow a platform, you know, and to hit many of the financial targets people are are set, that, that it's very tempting. And people fell into that without really much thought throughout the noughties and, and early part of last, last century. And it was only, unfortunately, once they take huge scale that people began to, to realize the wider responsibility of what they had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really good point. Alex, I'm going to pose the next question to you. War and natural disasters have often been uniting rather than polarizing events. Why do you think the current pandemic has become so polarizing? Pouring vaccines, masks, etc. That's a really good question. I don't know. I was going to say I don't know whether I agree with the fact that all all past events have become have become unifiers. I think at least in in some ways the the COVID pandemic has brought some of us uh, has brought some people together. So, for example, uh, at work. It's allowed people who, for example, haven't in the previously always spoken up or felt comfortable speaking up in a more physical in-person environment. There's some evidence to suggest, again, it's quite early days, and I think this is an area where we definitely need more evidence, but there is some evidence to suggest that with the enhanced or increased sense of anonymity that online platforms give us, that people are more able to uh, feel that they, they, can, um, they can speak up. I think on the case of mask uh, mask bearers and you know anti-vaxxers and that's, that's an example of what we describe in the book as these broad kind of partisan labels that become proxies for a whole bunch of attitudes and values and beliefs that we attribute to for example um, anti-vaxxers and again once as per said earlier once we then identify a label or categorize someone as belonging to for example you're an anti-vaxxer that will then trigger psychologically um, negative feelings towards people who identify or who are part of that group and positive feelings um, towards us. So I guess to sum up, I think we have this you know, ancient capacity for tribalism. I think what we're seeing now is that there's this more affective polarisation based on groups, group divisions. So labels like anti-vaxxers and mass has just become a more modern take on a very old problem. So it's the same fundamental problem, it's just different different labels. The next question is, this talk appears to ignore how multiculturalism has largely been successful in the UK. Are you taking more extreme positions rather than exploring the middle ground? Laura? It's a really interesting question. Multiculturalism is... Do you know what? I'm going to answer that by saying I was watching the Blair Brown documentary the other day at the kind of peak of the moment when it felt like the UK was making really big strides on multiculturalism. And actually, one of our podcast guests, Derek Bardowell, talked about this when he came on our podcast to say there was a moment when it felt like everything was going in the right direction. And I'm sure at lots of levels in lots of communities, that's still true. So we're not saying that the progress hasn't been made. It's more that what has happened 
post-financial crash is another cycle of this effect that we've seen before, which is when there is a huge hit that destabilises economically, it causes much more uncertainty. It can cause people to bind more to their identities. And that might not be, you know, along race lines or, you know, gender lines or or anything else, but it whatever it is, it can sow a seed of division. So it's certainly not impossible that we will turn the corner quite quickly and that it's and it's certainly not a universally negative picture but i do think there is something about the sequence of events over the last sort of 15 years or so which has put us in this you know quite vulnerable position for our divisions to worsen so but i really like the challenge have we taken an overly extreme view here you know are we being polarizing in our view of polarization it's a good question uh, but i think it's it's more the combination of factors so it's not to say that there isn't a lot of progress being making it's just there are a lot of those factors that linda pointed out from the middle section of the book around the things that typically trigger this type of response that are present at the moment. They've been present before, no doubt they'll recede and they'll be present again. But it's just a it's a thing to be mindful of. Mm. Thank you. Ali, I think the next question is really for you. I've seen some people say that the United States is so polarized, it would be better for everyone if it was divided into two countries, one for liberals and one for conservatives. Would this work as a solution? <laughs> um, so I guess I'll just take the first part of that is, you know, obviously the the US has, has consumed a lot of the oxygen for all sorts of reasons around debate on polarization. The, the evidence is that although polarization is rising quite dramatically here, you know, it's, it's risen in the, in the UK as well, and, you know, the said post, post-crash, it's not the most polarized democracy. And, you know, and we should limit our comments maybe to what I would call durable democracy, so where there's been a few transitions of power. You know, like you look at, at Turkey with Erdogan, you look at what's going on in Hungary, you look at, you know, even in Greece, you know, the home of democracy after the financial crash, there was huge riots on the streets in Australia. It's often over climate change, you know, and they're, they're what they call leadership spills or the change election, they can be very, very, very heated in Australia, you know, and I think it's that's not to diminish the severity of what is going on in America, but it is not the only place in the world which is is polarized or even the most polarized. It's, um, you know, I, I love it. I, you know, I live here, but um, <laughs> that's an important thing to bear in mind. Would it work to split the country into two? No, I don't think it would, actually. Um, <laughs> California has its own separatist movement, actually, like which fortunately for me died a death after Brexit. Some of the Brexit campaigners came over here about like, do they try and split California off from the, the rest of the US? Because I think you know what happens if you are a red or a republican in a blue straight or vice versa suddenly you don't feel like part of the whole you feel even more challenged and that's not going to try and, and help bridge those those divides i think that there are some fairly unique factors here in the the us i mean it's interesting that their constitution for example has even where it was initially copied by other countries has not lasted the, the length of time it has has here um but no i i don't think splitting the the us into two things would be would be good in the long run. And in fact, I think although it might give some immediate gratification to people who really disliked the other side, it it would not be worth it. Alex, um, I'll pose the next question to you. Can you talk about the age profile of polarization? Not a day goes by when there isn't a news article about young people being woke and intolerant. Is there any evidence for a generational divide on polarization or changing your mind? The question is from Catherine. Yeah, really, really good. Um, it's a really good question. I think doing the research of the book, 
when we were looking at the environment, so what are the wider forces that potentially interact with our individual psychologies and the groups that we identify with, the generational effects was uh, one, which is one factor that we, we looked at. But I would actually direct the, the listener here to Bobby Duffy, who's uh, at King's College, and he's recently published a book on generations and to what extent they are they are divided. And it's a really seminal analysis um, looking at evidence, I think, both in the UK and the US. And I think his argument, but I was going to say, Laura and Ali, correct me if I'm wrong, the thing is that argument is actually there's much less division than we than we think. So yes, there will be there will be some, you know, so generate you have generational effects that affect that generation's values and beliefs are what we think is important. So for example, baby boomers will prioritise or value maybe different things than uh, millennials. I think I'm just I think I'm a grandma millennial. And that will contribute that will that will contribute to that will contribute to our beliefs. But remember, those those broader environmental effects will interact with our individual um, psychologies and our individual identities. So it's not it, it it can explain I think some of the differences, but not all of it. And I'm sure said so Bobby's main argument is actually is much less division than we think. But Ali Laura, correct me if I'm wrong. I would have said the same, Alex, that Bobby's is the work to go to. I mean, I would just note from the book, one really interesting study that we looked at and others might be interested in is the really long running piece of work Cambridge University has done about different cohorts views of democracy, because that is really interesting. And it is different around the world in different age groups. And that very much comes back to the extent that you believe democracy and a meritocracy and your view of hope will mean that you do well under that system. System. And there's some really interesting, by Dr. Foa, there's some really interesting results in there which show that actually as that sort of hopefulness diminishes a bit in the context, particularly for the generation that grew up after the crash, their views on democracy and the extent to which they think democracy is the best system is much weaker and therefore they are much more attracted to a certain form of populism which promises to solve the problems that they perceive in the world. So that's a really interesting study and you know, it's a very top line summary, but it's is an incredible data set that is, is well worth a look at. Yeah. And the only thing I'd, I'd add to that in the, you know, obviously you're, well, most of you are in the UK or in London area, is that we did a really interesting piece of work with um, MHP, the consultancy agency, and some guys at Cambridge Uni, which looked at the diversity of friendship groups uh, for people from different cohorts and generations. And it wasn't completely generational wide, but the progressive activist group and particularly younger progressive activists were least likely to have friends from, or even want to have friends from other political cohorts. And I think that's when, you know, often when I'm talking to progressive campaigning groups, that's one of the things I'll, I'll really challenge them on and be like, if you need to try and change these people's views to bring about, you know, the change that you're campaigning for, you don't even want to be friends with them. Like there's, there's, an issue here like this is quite hard you might um, need to get to know and, some of them <laughs> yeah and you might even accept that sometimes they might have had an experience that gives them a legitimate viewpoint that is different to yours you know and that can be that can be really hard i mean admitting you're you're not typical or you're privileged or you're you're lucky or any of those things is really really tough it's been such a fascinating discussion. We're rapidly running out of time. I'm just going to squeeze in a final question to, to Alex. How do you bring up with someone who has a fixed set of ideas that you want them to consider other views without sounding patronizing? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a really good question to, uh, to end on. So I think... I think my, I think I'd respond. Um, I mean, I know Laura's already mentioned. So two points I want to make. Laura's already mentioned about the the shared 
shared ground and what you have in common. So again, the insight behind that is that our identities are inherently flexible. So I want, I want readers to go away feeling more optimistic that identities are not fixed. And you know, day to day, we switch from individual identities, like I'm a mother, to group identities. You know, I'm a conservative one, not much less so anymore. But you get the gist. So they're very context dependent. dependent. So if you're in a situation where you're sensing hostility or animosity. Think about actually what do we have in common and how can we how can we form a shared identity rather than what's different. That's my first point. My second point would be to avoid a, a zero sum kind of winner takes all mentality that makes both sides think the other side wins that they will therefore lose. And that, that kind of mindset is really illustrative of our tendency to reduce the complexity of the world into simple binaries, which comes back to the storytelling point that we made earlier. So, um, you know, people's tendencies to look at issues like all or nothing, good or evil, black or white, us and them. And this binary uh, mindset is is arguably made worse by the increasing amounts of information that we have all around us. So, try and you know upfront say, you know, this is this is complex. It is inc- we don't have I don't have all the answers. And try and shift us from that from a winning mindset. You know, I have to beat, I have to beat, I have to win, to a more understanding and curiosity type mindset. So thinking about why and what can I learn rather than how can I beat you. So that is a great comment uh, to end on. Uh, but to conclude, I'm not going to attempt to sum up because I think everyone should just buy your book. And, uh, <laughs> yes, and yes, they, they should. They, totally should. <laughs> I don't, they don't need a summary. Uh, but I would like to share the questions uh, that you pose in your book that we should all think about. So the first question is, when was the last time I changed my mind on something substantial? When was the last time I challenged myself on why I think what I think? When was the last time I spoke to someone who has a different political or worldview to mine? And finally, does anyone in my circle of friends have a different political or worldview to mine? It's a stimulating set of questions from a really thought-provoking book. So I just want to give a huge thank you to Ali Goldsworthy, Laura Osborne, and Alex Chesterfield for just a fantastic book, Pulls Apart, why people turn against each other and how to bring them together. And so to the audience, I urge you all to pick up a copy and uh, also to to thank uh, the audience um, for really terrific questions. And those questions were just superb. So thank you all for being uh, so engaged and thoughtful and for joining us for this Intelligence Squared event.